Hello. You're listening to Dave and Giggles on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a special edition of Dave and Giggles. We have a longtime famed music critic, uh, musician, author on our show. His name is Joel Selvin. He's been around the block. He's seen some shows. He's seen some stuff. Everything's cool. So we are Dave and Giggles. This is uh, Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's jump into it. How you doing, Joel? Are you, Joel, are you on a safari right now? You look like you're ready to like take down an elephant or a rhino. <laughs> I am in Mufti. Uh, you find me here in Inverness, California, on the edge of the Western world, um, sort of one of the well, Tamales Bay, Drake's Bay, Pacific Ocean, and uh, I'm sitting in the uh, Tamales Bay resort conference center because that's where the only wi-fi i can find in the place <laughs> so what are you doing out there are you working on are you working on some new project or hanging out cool, cooling out just finished doing something and 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 need to like take a couple of days in the in the uh you know sun and salt area that sounds like a great time so first first things first how how did the pandemic treat you you okay everybody all right a lockdown really isn't very hard on writers I mean, that, you know, I mean, what do I do? You know, I go to the store less frequently. <laughs> right. That's a good point. I feel like writers, you know, a, a bottle of something and, and, and some, something to write on or a computer. And that's all you need. Oh, sometimes, you know, I like to listen to records too, but you know, yeah. Read, write, listen to records, eat, sleep, and I'm done. <laughs> that's it. Repeat cycle. Do you, I got to ask you this, Joel, do you have a uh, easy creative process? Are you like right in the zone when you, when you, when you're ready to like write something down or type something down, or does it take you kind of like, you got to stretch a little, I'm not going to say like, what's your process, but like, what's your process? Interesting question. You know, 36 years in the newspaper business, uh, you know, maybe around 5,000 newspaper articles, all, you know, written under some kind of post haste deadline. Uh, I, I don't suffer writer's block, but, you know, sometimes you sit down and, and write stuff and, it, and it's better than other times when you sit down. And <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, uh, that's an interesting question. Sometimes uh, I get wrapped up in uh, uh, um, the story I'm telling the way you would if you were reading it and and you know, just have to stay at the keyboard until I finish what I'm doing so that I know what happened. I mean, the, the, when you get toward the end of, of writing a book, it, it can be very, very exciting. Uh, it, just like the end of reading a book. Is there like a, a, a separation anxiety when you're done with it? Like it's hard to put down or can you just go, okay, I'm done with that chapter. I'm done with that. Ah, uh, well, Leonard Cohen once told me that W.H. Auden said that a poem is never finished, only abandoned. Um, and the, once you submit a manuscript to your editor, you are nowhere near done with it. And you're going to be going back over it, back over it again and back over it again. So there's a whole process to the uh, uh, production yeah. That, 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 you know, that, that obviates that separation anxiety. Right. And then it takes forever uh, for the book to get actually published. And you, you, you have to like bone up again before somebody asks you a question about what you meant when you said this. Sure. How far back does that go, Joel? Does like, do you like, you look back at some of the early stuff you did and like, 
be like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to change a couple things here and there. Or like, do you, do, do you look at it differently than you would something you just wrote? Interesting. I tend to write in, um, what are they, in continuity, as they say in Hollywood. Uh, but this, uh, I just did uh, a book proposal project and I wrote it in completely out of continuity. So uh, that was an interesting experience. Um, yeah, um, you, you know, you, you, you start and you go until you stop and, and, and you try and encompass what you're thinking. Sure. And then you go back and go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? <laughs> I do that all the time. All right, I'm going to ask a fun question. Uh, what's your favorite dead show? There were some good shows, and there were some really great moments in other shows. Uh, and there are some things that really stood out, like that weren't necessarily good shows, uh, but pinned to the wall. Uh, so midnight, uh, midnight to 6 a.m., uh, December 31st. 1968 at Winterland. Wow. 5,400 people in the audience on LSD, six people on stage on LSD. Um, I, I particularly remember the Viola Lee blues from that night. Uh, the, the entire place levitated and then just dropped. Um, but of course, that's the old time dead. That's Pigpen and all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I might have to go yeah. back and listen to that show now. Thanks, it's Joe. around. It's around. Yeah. The uh, the Dick's Pick. If you wanted to be directed towards the Dick Picks, I'm particularly fond of. I think it's 21. Uh, it's uh, King's Castle, Tahoe, and that's the one that they cut up and turned into the second album, uh, whatever you call oh. that, Anthem of Sun. Yeah, that's a real good Dick's Picks. There's lots of those actually. The, 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 there's some extraordinary things in there those those guys made hours you know thousands of hours of music there was, a, there was lots of good but uh, you know they they didn't expect it to be uh on any kind of high consistent level of excellence that's not what the game was for the band i mean right. they called it diving for pearls it's like you us mean, you know we, we get some gems yeah, sometimes some you know gems. we get some duds you know this feels like a gem joel i this i feel like this interview has been like months in the making and we finally got around to getting to it. So uh, I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I know Dave's done a little research. We're going to talk about the book because you got a book coming out. Um, Hollywood Eden, which is, is it, is it released? Can we, we can get yeah, it, right? We can... It's been out for a couple of months. It's, it's doing great. That's nice. Awesome. Yeah, I saw a lot of the feedback you're getting. It's, it's really, it's really getting great reviews. So, and uh, you'll get another one from me. I finished it pretty much today. So I'm uh, pretty fresh on it. So Hollywood Eden um it's it's a great book pretty much how would you how do you describe it to people because i feel like it encompasses so much essentially it starts at the uh 1958 class of university high school in west los angeles uh, a public high school serving the rather elite neighborhoods of bel-air and brentwood and uh a group of people who went to school together and knew each other Jan, Dean, Nancy Sinatra, Bruce Johnston of the Beach Boys, um, Sandy Nelson, the drummer, the song, uh, record producer Kim Fowley. Heck, Gidget was in that class. Yeah, yeah the real, the real Gidget. So Jan and Dean went to high school with Gidget, That's and right. um, I real looked looked at that, and somewhere along the line, I, I, I drew the lines into the future and saw that 
Jan had his car crash. Brian put out Pet Sounds. Uh, Nancy Sinatra put out Boots Are Made for Walking. Uh, all these things just came beam, 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 beam down in spring of 1966. And it's like all these story arcs are just dying to be filled out. So essentially we go from the locker room of University High after football practice with a bunch of naked guys singing doo-wop songs to Brian Wilson making good vibrations eight years later. Right. The one thing that really like, because the book is so dense and like it kind of has this feel to it that like you could trace back anything through through it through the, through these characters you know like everything kind of went from one character to the next character to the next and it kind of like snowballed you know but the one thing that really stood like you're you're reading this thing and and all these characters seem like they lived a billion lifetimes and then you're you're talking about um phil specter and he, he's like is my career over and he's 26 years old you know, like all these guys like had such huge, huge lifetimes. And they, and you, you you're reading this. And you're like, oh, these guys are like old now. And they were only like in their mid 20s when so much had happened that that was just like, what have I been doing with my life? You know, like there was kind of that moment. Well, Jan Berry had a top 10 hit before he was out of high school. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, this is a time when these things were possible and these were people who knew no limits in their life. You know, they were, they were the, the privileged elite of, of, of Southern California. And they were growing up at a time where all this stuff was still possible. Yeah, Phil Spector's first hit record was the summer after he graduated from high school. Wow. And they're all California natives too. That's another thing. It's like California, I mean, I, I've lived here all my life and I've watched people come out here to be themselves in ways they couldn't be wherever else they were, Texas, Minnesota, Chicago, New York. You know, and it's, it's a cliche to say that, you know, you reinvent yourself in California, but these kids didn't have to reinvent themselves. You know, they grew up going to Disneyland. One of the other things that I really, really loved about this was it was, it was a, it was a Google fantasy for me. Like you sit there and you're reading the book and then a new character comes up and you're like, let me go see what this guy looked like. Or you're talking about a, an album or a song and you're like, I'm going to go listen to this song. So it was just like I, my, my, my entire Spotify is full of all the songs that you pretty much listed throughout the thing. So There's a Hollywood like Eden Spotify playlist. Just dial that up. That's I'm going to dial that up. But it was really fun to listen to um, The Crystals, uh, He's a Rebel, which was like that kind of breakout Phil Spector song that he kind of found his sound on. And you can hear it all right there. That is all Phil Spector, 100%, like from the get-go of that song. Well, it's also the, the first uh, recording session by the group of session musicians in Los Angeles that came to be known as the Wrecking Crew. And, and, and that is the whole, uh, uh, you know, the big bang of, of, of Los Angeles rock because Spector was back in town. He'd moved to New York as soon as he had success because that's where the music business was. And he needed to have a session really quickly because another producer had this song and was going to record it. So he wanted to get the beat on the other guy. So he called his high school buddy from Fairfax High, Steve Douglas, who had been in the Dwayne Eddy band, a sax player. And he'd been back in town playing sessions on R&B records and, and, and mostly section work, stuff like that. And he said, had Steve pull a session together. So Steve got Hal Blaine, this, this guy from the, the Valley he knew and, 
Al Delore on piano and Tommy Tedesco on uh, guitar. And, and, and that was the huge different kind of thing than, than, than session musicians were before. These guys uh, uh, were rock and roll musicians. They showed up in blue jeans and t-shirts. They weren't former big band jazz guys or R&B guys who were slumming. They, they, they were into this music. And the, the He's a Rebel was the first time they really played together and gelled. Uh, of course, you know, the, the pool of talent would enlarge from the six or seven, eight people that played that session to, you know, 20, 30 people. But the, the, those were the guys that made everything possible uh, for all the Brian Wilsons and Jan Berries and Lou Adlers and the Mamas and Papas. I mean, they played on everybody's records. They played on Elvis records. They played on Sinatra records that, uh, if you wanted this new West Coast pop sound, those were the guys that you went to. Yeah, and so that was what was really important about He's a Rebel. But it's also, you know, it's remarkable, isn't it? That record sounds fresh and, 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 and powerful to this day. It's really yeah. something. That was, yeah, that Darling, was something as like- Darlene Love yeah. on lead vocals. Yeah. Another session musician. I know, it, it is wild to think that like, some of like the most acclaimed people like as far as like number one hits and all that are people you know studio musicians who who just go to go show up at a studio record something then they must have the patience of a, of a saint to like sit there and do something for phil specter like a billion times but i just did an interview with somebody who watched uh the session drummer jim gordon uh record the uh track for the Carly Simon record, You're So Vain. Mm -hmm. He said it was about 60 takes, took about five hours. And the producer was highly sensitive to microtonal issues and subtle shifts in rhythm. No, let's do that one again. No, let's do it again. The drummer hit the snare drum in the same place, equally hard, every 60 takes. And at the end of the five hours, his snare drum had been cratered. It was like a scientist or something, you know, or a jeweler. Yeah. I don't know what to compare it to. It's just an amazing kind of microscopic musicianship. Yeah. And it's also like, if you look at everything as, a, as, a, uh, as, as geniuses go, you had like the Kubricks in the film world around the same time who would do takes you know, like for The Shining or something, he would do like a thousand takes. Like, I don't know what, like, I, 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 I don't want to say that I don't have it or I do have it, but like that idea of like having that such a tuned focus to be able to say that one was close, but not quite right. Let's do it again. And then, and like, like feeling that in the room to be like, oh, we got this, man. We, we, we finished that. Why, why do we want to do that again? It must have been, it must have been wild to be a part of. I think that some people were more inspirational to work with than others. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that, that everybody who went to a Beach Boys session thought they were into something really special and they treated Brian Wilson uh, like some kind of golden child. Uh, uh, you know, um, idiot savant's a little strong, but I mean, he was such an innocent force and and he was willing to try anything and the, uh i mean they 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 just 
followed him and, 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 and he became really in tune with those musicians because he knew what they could do. So he started composing for their strengths in the same way that Duke Ellington used to write for the guys in his band who he'd become so familiar with. And, and you look at something like the bass line in Good Vibrations, which Carol Kay always takes credit for, but it actually wasn't Carol Kay. It was Carol Kay on a Fender electric bass and Lyle, uh, Lyle uh, York, no, not York, Lyle, and, he, and on a Dan Electro bass. And they played the same part, but by doubling those two instruments, it came up with an entirely different sound than you could get from just one. You know, you think back to Good Vibrations, you know, that bass part, I mean, it doesn't sound like other bass parts. So that's Brian. I mean, the first time they ran down uh, uh, the, the instrumental track to Good Vibrations, and there weren't lyrics at that point, Glenn Campbell looks up at Brian and says, Hoo-wee, Brian, what were you smoking when you wrote this? <laughs> I mean, it's true. You listen to a lot of that stuff, and you're like, wow, this is far out there. But like you were saying with like, the, the the musicianship and having that tight-knit thing. It's just like the dead. I think I, I heard uh, Bobby say once, it's like playing music is like having a conversation. If you're familiar with somebody, that conversation can, can lead to amazing things. And then in that conversation, it could be a good conversation. It could be a fight. It could be whatever it, it's going to be, but it's going to, you know, the more, the more closer, the more open you are in that conversation, the more open the music is going to be. So I can understand, you know. Bobby Weir is an interesting kind of musician who has played a certain kind of music all his life. Mm -hmm. And he could no more do the kind of things that those guys in the Los Angeles recording studios do than he could fly to the moon. And I, and, and I mean, can you imagine Bobby Weir on 60 takes? No, no Bobby, <laughs> we could just what you did the last one, do that again, okay? He Only wouldn't know what to do. He wouldn't know what to do. Uh, and I remember right after um, Terrapin Station, he got palsy wowsy with Keith Olson, who was the producer of Terrapin Station and the owner of Sound City uh, Recording Studios in Van Nuys. And, and Keith was a fantastic uh, producer. He produced the first hit Fleetwood Mac album, brought Buckingham Knicks into the, in, into the deal. And had all kinds of fancy engineering tricks. His, his big drum trick was to mic the drums and send them into the uh, control room through the control room speakers and then put up microphones in the control room to pick oh. up the ambient drum sound wow. and have that as a, like a ghost track behind all the close mic drums. So he could, he could make it sort of sound larger. I mean, great stuff like that. And he got involved with Bobby. Uh, doing a solo album. I think it was called Heaven Help Us All or something like that. Uh, and, and the first thing they did was they used a bunch of tracks that studio musicians had recorded for a guy named Michael Dinner. And, and, and they didn't use it on the Michael Dinner album. And, and, and I remember Keith saying, oh, Michael Dinner couldn't sing up to the tracks. And, you know, no kidding, man. It was, you know, the guys from Toto and Bill Champlin from Chicago. And, you know, it was, they were heavy tracks. And, you know, Bobby couldn't sing up to them either. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, we got Joel Selvin, author, musician, uh, music critic, uh, hanging out with us from California. I used to listen to a lot of oldies back in the day. Doing your work on this book, what was your process? Was it like a lot of research? Was it, were you, 
were you there for all this stuff? Like, I, that's what I kept thinking throughout reading the entire book. I was like, was he part of this thing? Was he it? Was he was he was he friends with all these guys? What's He's got the on? inside scoop. He's got the, it uh, felt like you were there. You were there with them. A hundred percent. That that was the feeling I hoped to impart is that, you know, you would know reading it what it felt like to be there. Yeah. Look, th this subject has been thoroughly well researched. If you look at the author photo, you can see the pile of books around the computer. Those were the books I was working on. Uh, but it's not that I didn't do a, uh, my own research on this. In fact, in 2014, um, I got Jill Gibson to agree to participate in this. And that's when I knew that I had a book and that I wanted to move forward on it. Um, it was very important for me to bring the female story out because all the previous accounts of this era are just a boys club. And I, you know, I know there were women there. The fact is that there were very limited sort of constricted roles for women in general in society in those years. And it was the struggle of that generation of women to find some independent uh, identity beyond being someone's wife or girlfriend. And that was the struggle that, that you needed to have in the foreground, along with the, you know, the struggle that the guys made for their uh, accomplishments and, 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 you know, whatever their slaying dragons they had to slay. But I needed Jill Gibson in the foreground and I needed to pull Nancy Sinatra into the foreground because both of them had to deal with this whole thing of being a female in, 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 the, in the world uh, before what came to be called women's lib. Uh, and they, they were, I don't know archetypal, but they were emblematic of, of their whole generation. And, and, and so once Jill agreed to participate and, and, you know, she's someone who hasn't thought a lot about her youth. She left Los Angeles like about a year after the book ends and moved to New York and then Italy and, 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 and studied art and became a, a you know, painter and sculptor and exhibited and, you know, really, this stuff all happened in her in her way distant youth. It was a lifetime ago to her. So to dig through all that crud, and it is a lot of crud for her, uh, you know, it required some some dedication. And, and um, her story lights up that book, uh, and it wouldn't have been the same book without her. So the, you know, the process really hinged a lot on uh, once I had that in place then I knew that I could write the kind of book that I hoped to. Yeah, Jill's voice is very, I mean, Jill and Nancy's voice are extremely strong in this book, which was really, it was really good to see because like when there was like a, a life-changing event that happened, I felt like the, the emotion was on Jill or Nancy, like it throughout the whole book. It was like, it was, it was the emotion of like the decisions that were needed to be made or the life choices that need to happen were within Jill and Nancy, which was, which was very interesting to see because like they, they surrounded themselves with all of these other characters, but they were the heart and soul of this, of the story, which now that I know that you, you were, Jill was the, the centerpiece of that. It totally makes sense. Here's the linchpin. Some reviewers said that she was the conscience of the book. 
Yeah. And, and uh, uh, that, that really got me. But she certainly didn't care about the same things, right? She didn't want to be on the chart. She didn't want to write a hit record. She just wanted to have a good time and, and, and you know, lie in the sand and, uh, right. you know, do what, what, what seemed like fun at the time. Uh, Jill and, 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 and is a classic California girl. Yeah. And, and the, it's a breed apart, I swear to God. Uh, Brian wasn't kidding. I, and I, I don't know how to explain California girls, but the, you, you explain, know, they, explain. Yeah, let's hear it. Explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, we can, <laughs> they weren't the type to, to like go to the cotillion and, and try and, and, and figure out how to get a, a law student to date them. You know, I, I mean, you know, there were, there were other things in, in, in their purview and they're, they're up to, I, I told my daughter that no California girl was worth her salt until she changed into a bathing suit in a parking lot. Yeah. California's cool. California is one of those places. Yeah. I feel like you haven't left. Like I was going to, the next question was going to be, where would you go if it wasn't California? But you seem to be kind of like a California lifer. It's gone. And, and yeah. Uh, Oh, I, lo- I love New York and, and I love London. And, uh, you, you know, I, I have a, a, a mad affair with New Orleans, but, uh, you know, wherever I go, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm a California kid and everybody knows it. I never pass for a New Yorker. <laughs> uh, my next question, uh, we, we, Dave and I have been doing this show for a while. I'll give you a little backstory. We've been doing the show for maybe 11 years. We've talked to a lot of people. We've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, you, you've got the skill down. And I, I kind of want to ask you, as someone who interviews a lot of people, you know, Dave and I, how do you, I don't want to say get an in, but like, what's the, do you just don't go in there thinking about the interview? Like, how do you kind of get people to open up and just, is it a, it's something that you can't learn? It just takes years of experience. One of the uh, question yourself. I'm, Did you just answer that question what, yourself? What, no, I'm just I'm trying to you know trying to phrase it right. Look, um, there are situations where when you're doing a newspaper article or something, you don't really care whether people reveal themselves. You just ask them questions like it's a deposition, right. and 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 take down their answer. But you know that that's not for feature articles or if you're trying to feel somebody out. And I'll tell you the I'll tell you the secret to to interviews. It's listening. That's it. Being present and listening intently, and not fumbling around in the back of your head of like, what's my next question going to be, or how am I going to get him to say this? But listening and and trying to understand what this person is saying, why they're saying it the way they are, and 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 be receipt on a receiving station. Right. That, that works really, really well. Question. When people are heard, they know it. Listening. <laughs> I try to get Dave to work on his listening skills. I, I actually been trying to do more of that myself because I, I tend to talk a lot sometimes. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes I should maybe just step back and let, you know, well, let, uh, you three little kids. You, you got to do yeah. a little screaming to get those kids. Right. In. Nobody hears me. Nobody, Nobody hears, hears me. <laughs> um, I got a question for you. Do people send you demos? Do they just like, hey, Joel, take a listen to this. What do you think about this? Every day, I think. I, and, and, <laughs> and it's kind of ridiculous because I'm so out of it. it you know, it's like, you know, God, how desperate is that? You just want anybody to listen to your music. But yeah, uh, there's and, and now that you can email these things, there's no end of that. But I'll tell you a story. 
my friend David Rubinson was a big deal re record producer. He produced uh, Herbie Hancock and the Pointer Sisters and, you know, just big deal. And he had a very serious heart attack and was ambulanced out of the studio into the hospital. And they performed some surgery on him and put him in the recovery room. And the last thing he remembers was he was in the recording studio and he's coming to, and there's some guy in white leaning over him saying, Mr. Rubinson, I know you're not feeling very well right now, but I understand you're in the record business and I have this demo tape. I'm just going to slip it under your pillow for when you're feeling better. You got to take every opportunity. Every, you, yeah. you really got to like. I asked him how the songs were. He says they weren't bad. They weren't yeah. bad. <laughs> Shy uh, people don't eat. Shy people don't eat. I, I yeah, like to say it's that. It's true. You got to make it or break it. It was amazing to see how how interesting it was before like what we know now, how people kind of like broken. It's just like you show up and if you had a couple songs, you'd show them to the right person. All of a sudden you're in the studio that it just seems so, so foreign to us now. It's just like, Oh yeah. It's like I said, you know, that's Hollywood when things were still possible. And, and, and yeah, I mean, the Herb Alpert and Lou Adler, they get together, they write six songs, they go into the studio and they record these demos. And now what do they do? They've never written a song before. They've never sold a song. They're rank amateurs, but they take the songs around to the record companies. The record companies are running out of storefronts mm. in on Vine Street and they listen to them and, and they sold five of the six. And the last guy who bought the songs says, you know, you're a couple of young hip guys. You want a job and hired them to work as A&R on the Keen Records label. And that's how they got into the record business. They just literally walked in the front door and got a job. I don't think that could happen now. No. The other interesting thing of like then versus now was um, like radio stations. I mean, we all know that like radio, this DJs were like the biggest thing in the world then. And it was amazing to see like if you got the, the, the record into the hands of the right people, you had a number one hit just by but just by playing it on the radio. And like it made me think of like, do we have an, do we even have an equivalent today? Like from your perspective, you've seen it all. Is there any yeah, there, are no, there, there are no hit records anymore. I mean, no. you know, you can get a million uh, uh, spins on Spotify and nobody knows your song. Uh, when Proud Mary was on the top of the charts, everybody in the country knew that song. Uh, it was blasted out of your neighbor's window. It was coming out of a car when they drove by. Uh, and, and hit records just do not have the same kind of uh, impact, but neither do hit TV shows. Uh, you, you know, uh, there, there's too many TV shows. They're serving too many tastes. The audience is too niche. You know, you're not going to get, uh, uh, you know, a million, you know, 40, 50 million people watching the end of Seinfeld anymore. Right. Yeah. Not going to be crowding <laughs> around the Times Square monitor watching the Seinfeld last episode. It's... What are you doing over there? I was just making sure you're there. The no, It's getting a little choppy. Freeze. We got a little oh, choppy. We didn't freeze. A choppy? Uh, let's see here. Hold on. Uh, I, I took <laughs> notes. I got notes. I'm a note taker. I'm a, are you a, a fellow left-hander? Are you a left-hander? Is that too personal of a question for you? 
No, I'm, I'm right-handed, but I also okay. use a lot of notes and I, and I switch off between pen and pencil, depending on what kind of note I'm taking. Mm. Interesting. Some what, of my notes what, are, what, uh, what kind of my, note would my, dictate a pencil? I use the, the, when I start scratching down outlines and things I want to write, I use pencil because I might want to move that stuff around. Mm. If I'm writing, if I'm taking down interview notes, I use pen because, you know, it's bolder and, and I can read it better. Won't fade. But, yeah, no, and, and, I have, and I have piles of notes and I, and I never know what to do with them when I'm done with the books. So I just throw them in a file folder. I don't believe I've ever consulted those notes again. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a show have some kind of deadhead angle? No, we just, I, I was doing a little, you know, research and I was like, oh man, this guy, feel, I feel like you were there at some stuff. You were there at some <laughs> shows and like, you know the the one book you wrote, like deadheads. You know they 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 turn up everywhere. I mean they oh, do. Uh, I mean I'm a big dead fan, so like I'm right there with you. I, I this is not a dead show or a no, fish show or anything no. like that, but I like the music. So here we are. Here we are. Uh, this is kind of this is like a, this feels like a dating question. But do you have any tattoos? <laughs> so uh, you know I, I wrote the autobiography of Ed Hardy. I saw that. I saw that. And. Ed Hardy is going to be recognized as one of the great artists of the 20th century. Wow. Uh, he is the guy that opened up the tattoo field and, uh, you know, moved it out, out of sailors and, 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 you know, port sides. And, and, you know, so next time you see some, you know, hip gal at Greenpoint with a, you know, groovy tattoo down her sleeve, you know, think Ed Hardy, that's how that happened. I mean, and, and that said, uh, I have no tattoos, but Ed says that's just money in the bank. And, and, and the, you know, I've got a lot of territory that could be covered. <laughs> What's the uh, most interesting thing you found out about, uh, about Ed Hardy when doing uh, that whole book? Oh, man, that, that, that book was a treasure. And Ed's just a gorgeous guy. Uh, and, of course, the whole tattoo world is just fantastic. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Ed was real close friends with Sailor Jerry, and he knew all the history of the of, of the 20th century tattoos and knew the guys that did it in New York when it was still legal. And so, I mean, I just it was like dropping into a, a, a different world. But I will tell you, we had a book party when it came out and all these people that had Ed Hardy tattoos showed up at the book party. And there was lots of guys like pulling up their pants and showing these, you know, or taking off their shirts and dropping their backs. I mean, there, there were like 80 to 100 people in this room and every one of them except me was tattooed. And a lot of them had very extravagant tattoos. I mean, and Ed will spend weeks, if not months, putting these artworks on, you know, that, that go from people's back of people's knees up over their back and over their shoulders. And, and then, you know, I mean, uh, I remember this, we met this gal who had this fantastic uh, piece that, that she, she was an artist and she'd drawn a lot of it, but Ed finished it up. It was an exploding jukebox that exploded on her back and shot records all around her side and into her belly. Wild. Uh, little pieces of records and they were all kinetic, but they also, she didn't want any outlining. Okay, 
So, so, and if you haven't, if you think about that, you oh, haven't yeah. seen a tattoo that didn't have outlines, right? Yeah, that's, that's very right. Bad. I so there was no outlines on this thing. And it was a fantastic tattoo. And man, she showed it to me and she whipped up her, you know, blouse and everything. It was fantastic. And she died about six months later. And I got to tell you, Ed experienced a kind of grief that was entirely different than having a friend die because it wasn't just his friend. It was this fantastic artwork he'd done. Yeah. Yeah, it was his art. His art is dying. And it's gone. And he visited the guy in Japan who had harvested the famous tattoos in the 40s and 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 saved these guys' hides that had had full back tattoos. Uh, that back in the 80s or the 70s, Ed went and visited those guys. They, they were all photographed for Life magazine in the late 40s. And, and those were some of the first tattoo photos of tattoos Ed had seen. Uh, and then the, the, the guys were no longer alive, but he got to see the tattoos. He got to see his tattoos again. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Speaking of um, art dying, the one thing that kind of like was a turning point in the book, kind of going from that like, youthful kind of like innocence was both um the plane going down and the big bopper richie valens and buddy holly dying and then also obviously kennedy being assassinated what as as far as like your memory and your like kind of overall like music musical knowledge what had a bigger impact on on music and how big of an impact the the kennedy assassination was november of 63 and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan was February of 64. Right. I, don't, I don't think those are isolated incidences. Uh, the, the Beatles were a bomb to a grief-stricken nation. Mm. And they represented an optimism and a, uh, a, a new uh, world, a new vista that the youth of America badly needed right at that moment. Um, I, you know... Buddy Holly's uh, uh, plane crash was a you know, tragic event, no question about it. And, and it certainly sort of, you know, put a punctuation point on that era of rock and roll. But uh, the, the Kennedy assassination, uh, for anybody who lived through it can tell you, uh, it, it was just an extraordinary uh, national trauma. And, and, and the Beatles were one of the great healing agents. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I like the... Um the interjection of the Beatles, especially John and, and, uh, and Paul in this, it's like, especially like when they first heard, uh, God only knows. And Paul was like, let's listen to that again. Let's, let's, that's a good scene. Yeah. yeah. And I can totally see Paul doing that and being like, let's listen to it again. Cause Paul, I feel like he was more of the scenester as, as at that point, because John was like going through his divorces and all that stuff. And Paul was more on the scene. So I feel like he had a real beat on what was going on in the way in California. So, Oh, uh, you know, those guys always wondered about the beach boys and, and, and those records. Cause keep in mind the Beatles, they wouldn't face so much as a piano overdub without their producer, George Martin on the scene. And Brian was in there orchestrating these massive tracks and these extraordinary orchestral pieces without really being able to read or write music uh, other than this more fundamental way all by himself. He didn't have a George Martin going, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have that arrangement done. No, man. So Brian was out there in ways that, that the, the Beatles never were. And they knew that. So 
that, that became a, 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 an object of fascination for them. And yeah, yeah they wanted to hear the big test pressing of pet sounds and, and yeah. McCartney showed up at the studio the next year and played on the, the, the vegetables track off Smiley Smile. And so yeah, no, it was definitely, the and Beach Boys awesome were in the world by themselves. Yeah, it was awesome to see them uh, like push each other on. Like, you know, like um, um, I want to say Revolver comes out and then he's like, all right, I'm writing Pet Sounds. And then that pushes them to write, you know, like the next one. So it was just like this, like, what are you doing? I'm going to try to double that. And then I'm going to try to double that. So it was just like this bad. It was, it was a wild scene because like worlds apart, you know, you're in, 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 in England and, and all the way out in California and they weren't like, you know, musical rivals, but they became this world like pusher, musical pusher, if you will. Well, I don't want to bring up the Mozart Salieri thing. Cause it's not quite exact, but the, uh, fact is, is that they were in a uh, art movement together and they were very plugged into the art movement, not just each other's work, but the whole surrounding art movement. And, and, and it was a, a, a time where everything was new and where people were pushing down barriers all the way around. Uh, so you kept your eye on these things and, and you could see each album being a progression of not just the individual musician, but the idiom itself. So yeah, you know, uh, Brian heard Rubber Soul and said, man, that's incredible. I have to make the greatest album ever. He makes Pet Sounds. So they hear Pet Sounds and they go, God, and they go back to their, their, their and, 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 and they write here, there, and everywhere, which goes on Revolver, you know? I mean, this right. is definitely like the way art movements worked. It's the way that Pissarro and Renoir influenced each other. It's the way that Brock and Picasso influenced each other. But in this case, it's playing out on a much larger scale, you know, the, 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 the pop music world. Do you see that anywhere now in any, any type of medium? Do you see any kind of like art being pushed in, in that kind of vein? Art? Or any type of, <laughs> any type of artistic going, that, That's very much in the technology world, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's how the technology thing works is, you know, they look at this, uh, uh, app and, and go oh i can i can i can do this do that do that it's just that thing better you know mm -hmm. so there's a lot of that there there's a lot of that in the music world still uh it's just the 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 level of of creativity is is it maybe is great but the platform has moved up so much that there's just not much room for innovation anymore yeah. and I, you know there was some uh interesting sort of creative developments in hip-hop in the 90s and and, and the early part of the 2000s but even that's kind of dried out and has, and has become sort of repetitive and, and, and templated. And, and uh, it's not that there's a level of creativity. It's just you can't really surprise people anymore. The, the, the innocence is gone. We, we've been there and done that too many times. What's the uh, first album you heard that changed your life? Oh, I had an experience with Aftermath uh, when it was the new Rolling Stones album. And uh, I, uh, I think it was my second LSD experience, but I had a, uh, you know, a, a, a moment with stereo headphones, aftermath and LSD that was like, <laughs> you know, I went out the next day and bought a record player. Got to say that changed my life. Yeah. I mean, that was a good answer. <laughs> uh, can we, are you still a part of this? Can we, uh, hearing education and awareness for rockers here? 
Are you still uh, doing Kathy, that? Or? Kathy's an ex-punk rocker who lost her hearing and decided to devote her life to uh, uh, making musicians have uh, safe and sensible uh, uh, hearing practices. Uh, it, it got into um, building custom-made uh, ear earpieces for for musicians. Uh, I, you know, I'm, uh, am I on her board of directors or something like that? I mean, it's just an endorsement, right? You know, she's yeah. a great gal and she's doing something important. And, and she was really the first person to bring that up in, in, in the for discussion in, in, in the conversation of like, you know, safe, safe uh, hearing safety. Yeah, it seems like this is kind of a new thing. You know, people go to these shows and they stand there right in front of the speaker and you're like, dude, you're, you're blowing out your eardrums. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like it's good to feel the bass, but also like you're you're doing some like real damage to your ears. I mean, uh, look, at, uh, look at all the. I mean, even Brian Wilson was deaf in one ear, right? Uh, Brian's been deaf since he was a kid. It doesn't uh -huh. have to do with his music thing. Uh, and yeah, you know, I've lost a few thousand uh, uh, cells to the Who. Yeah. Uh, just so just they. one band. Yeah. And uh, so, um, did they. I, it, so did they. <laughs> in the. Uh, Oh yeah, I, I talked to Townsend about that. You know, when he had his hearing troubles and then he went back, he's going back to, to being on stage. So I interviewed him, I said, you know, so, you know, what are you gonna do? He goes, oh, you know, I, I realized it was headphones and sitting around all night with my headphones on and I can play on stage. I go, really? What do you do about drums? And he looks like the vampire has just seen the cross. And he goes, I fucking stay away from them. <laughs> I mean, living, growing up with Keith Moon, blowing them up in your face. I would stay away from them as well. So here's the deal with the drums. It's the cymbals. Yeah, they're because they are right at ear level. Yeah. And they're struck from behind and the sound goes out yeah. at the guitar player, right at ear level in very high spectrum. So yeah, it's the symbols. It is the symbols. I, I attain to that. Yeah, I used to be in a band where I would stand right next to the drums, and after a night of playing, it was it was horrible. It was terrible. Even with headphones or like even with earplugs, it still did damage. So when you go to concerts, just put some tissue paper in your ear. That's all. Just a little bit, or bring some and some. See, I can't stand the earplugs. I tell you, it's like you know condoms and sex. Uh, but uh, you, you need to be aware of that stuff and, and, and you need to know uh, what's too loud. And, and you know, the, the fact is that you can get distance from really uh, uh, the, the more you back away from speakers, really the, the, the impact drops dramatically. So, you know, if I found myself in the front of, of a, a concert, and it was, you know, too strong. I just wander back to where the soundboard was. The soundboard, by the way, is where the best sound in the that's, hall that's is. That's why they're there. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're here with Joel Selvin with his new book. Um, Hollywood Eden. Hollywood Eden. I had it written, but it was up at the top. That's Hollywood why we're here, Eden. Dave. You can that's hear You can read it everywhere. Go download it. It's a great book, Joel. I really enjoyed reading it. It was great. Um, Thanks so I feel like there's a billion stories in that book, and there's a billion characters in that book. What was your what was your favorite of the uh, of the stories that came out of that book? Like, what was the one that you were like, this? I, I can't wait. To how, how about the, the how about the shooting of John Dolphin? Mm. Bruce Johnston's first day in the record business. That was pretty good. Yeah. 
uh, you know, I mean, the, to me, what I really wanted to do was create an overarching uh, narrative so that it read kind of like a novel yeah. and, and, and that you were introduced to these people while they're in high school and you followed them through the adversities and, and, and trials and tribulations of, of their life and watched them weave in and out of each other's lives. So that this whole thing was a reflection of not only who they were, but what it was like yeah. to be in Los Angeles before freeways, before smog. Uh, it is an enchanted place. And, and these people were, you know, tribal members of an enchanted village. Yeah, that is really interesting because like, half, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie to you, halfway through this book, I was like, is this a novel? Is this real? Is this, is this, are these real? And then I would look them up and go, no, 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 these are real people. This, this is, this is real. So like, like there were a couple moments where I was like, this reads more like a novel than like a, a time of life and real people. So kudos to you on that. You definitely achieved that. Well, that was the aim. I, I, I wanted to tell history like a story and uh, that, 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 requires there's a bunch of things that i've done to sort of advance that conceit of mine for instance you notice or maybe you didn't there's no quotes there's oh. reconstructed dialogue yeah but there's none of this you know attributed quotes you know which is a newspaper convention that i always sort of felt annoyed by you know you you, you say what happened and then you quote somebody who says, yeah, that's what happened, that's said so-and-so. And, so and, so. and, and I, to me, that just broke the plane uh, of, of uh, the imagination. Hmm. Somebody just steps in and goes, yeah, that's right. And uh, instead, I, I, I just eliminated that. I did that a number of books ago. I just like, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and it had the immediate effect of making it seem more like a narrative. And, and once I clocked that, I started moving increasingly in that direction. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, what was the the one catalyst that made you go, I'm writing this book? Probably seeing the, the University High Yearbook from 1958. Uh, somebody showed this to me and, and you know, I'm starting flipping through this. And it was like another world, right? Yeah. That's Santa Monica, 1958. And I started seeing all these people like, wow, there's, you know, Kim Fowley. Wow, look, Nancy Sinatra's on the, uh, uh, the address advisory board. Uh, and look at this, you know, oh God, here's Jan and Dean on the football team. And they really all went to school together. And this girl's Gidget and, and, and that's Barry Keenan. Isn't he the guy that kidnapped Frank Sinatra Jr.? Yeah, that was oh, an amazing like, story. <laughs> That was because uh, I remember they, I'm like I remember like halfway through that story being like oh that's right They're, he got kidnapped that this is happening right now <laughs> another you know Jan and Dean moment yeah no, I don't know how Dean didn't get arrested for that yeah but, it seems know, like he should have been it's it's just another moment of of, of Hollywood uh, of being a small town you know it's just high school hijinks uh, you know a few years out of high school I mean what they they met on. Uh, USC campus to like talk over the plans. And it's like, okay. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. There was, there's something too, like also about LA that like, 
you know, it was such a, a like post huge Hollywood, like the early Hollywood time. So you had a lot of like elder Hollywood stars. And of course, where that would be would be all of their kids now coming out of high school and going to university high. So it was it was it was wild to see all of those people kind of like spawned from the same place, you know. Well, you know, those kids had so much privilege and so much uh, cultural advantage uh, and, 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 you know, freedom from economic despair and all that kind of stuff that allowed them to kind of like live their dreams. And it, 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 it never occurred to them to, to do otherwise. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, yeah. It's really wild. Cause like you, you, you talk about Nancy and like you, you automatically go, like two things okay she's she's frank's daughter and then these boots are made for walking and like reading like the the before she came out with these boots are made for walking she was just frank's daughter and then when she comes out with that she's like oh she is her own person we knew that already i knew that already but like reading that like her trials and tribulations of getting to that point it was it was it was it was really well done i uh, kudos again to you so Nancy Sinatra had the same problems that all women of her generation did in, on steroids because she wasn't just somebody's daughter. She was Frank Sinatra's daughter. And wherever she went all her life, she was handled with kid gloves because of that. Now, don't think she didn't enjoy it. Of course she did. But it also kind of infantilized her in a way, right? She was always somebody's daughter. How can you be a grown-up sexual being if, if, if this daughter thing is what you're leading with? Right. And that was an issue for her. That's why she got married young, and that didn't really work out very well. And she really was at odds with her own self. She didn't know who she was. Yeah. But that song was an unprecedented amount of self-assertion for a female in American popular music. It was a, you know, shattered that glass ceiling, whatever it is. And in a, in, in, in a sense, that was an emblem of Nancy's own life and what it did for her. And again, I don't know how someone can have a record that had as much impact as that record did and have a career that, like she did and be as missing from the annals of rock and roll history as she is. True. And the only thing I can say is, I guess that's because they're all written by men. That's true. I don't know how else. Because that record's so important and so pivotal to so many things that were going on in our society. And it happened. That record happened to Nancy Sinatra. It changed her life in the same way that it represented. Uh, it's an amazing piece of, uh, you know, yeah. metaphor. Right. And I think a lot of it had to do with being Frank's daughter, kind of like it shadowed that whole thing, you know. Um, if I were going to, I'm I'm gonna say this. I'm nobody, but if I were gonna if I were gonna give you a quote to put on the book, it would be uh, to sum up the whole book in kind of one one sentence. It would be, "You're only as good as your last hit." <laughs> it's a Hollywood ethos, man. Is <laughs> it really is? And, and you know. Hollywood plays by its own rules. And, and I don't know how far back you want to go with this, but here's just in terms of like the history of drama, like going back to Shakespeare and before, 
it was always the play that was the attraction. Until somewhere around 1910, 1912, when the silent film business was getting going. And there was this producer named Jesse Lasky, and he formed a studio called Famous Films, Famous Players. And it was Famous Players in Famous Films. And he wanted you to go to, to, to he wanted to create something called Stars. And the first one he created was a gal named Mary Pickford. And her name still continues to this day, although I'd wager not too many people have seen her movies. But the fact is, is that she became the attraction. You never went to the, see the story anymore. You went to see the Mary Pickford right, film. Right. So this whole idea of stars, of attractions, was born of Hollywood in America in the 20th century. After centuries of drama in various cultures. And that's just the beginning of the sort of perversion of culture that Hollywood has represented since its very earliest days. Go Selvin. It was it was a, it was a pleasure hanging out with you. Yeah. I'm gonna I wanna throw this out to you. What do you want from from the soundtrack, from the soundtrack of the book? What do you want to close out the show? What song would you want to close out the show? Oh, come on. Good vibrations. Good vibrations. It's true. It it's true. That's a good one. <laughs> Joel Selvin, thanks for uh, hanging out with us for this past hour. This has been a pleasure. I feel yeah. like uh, we had fun. if we're out in uh, California, we're going to look you up. We're yeah. going to ring your doorbell. Hopefully I'm you'll uh, open your door. Yeah. I like it. I hope like you it. had fun, buddy. I hope you had fun. Thanks for all your interest. You guys take care. This is a blast. Cool. All right. Later, buddy. You as well, buddy. Take care. Have fun out there. I'm picking up Softly smile, I know she must be kind. In her eyes, she goes with me to a blossom room.